0: This is Lux Karpov, co-host of Wild Women, an intersectional feminist radio show talking about issues that affect women now and in history. Today we're going to be talking about the Ukrainian war and the impact it's having on the women there. We'll also be hearing a short excerpt from a story in an anthology to support Ukraine. And we will be getting a short report from the Women Empowerment Club at Ukiah High School.
1: I'm Alicia Bales, co-host with Lux. Hey. Hi. Uh, how's it going? Good. Interesting times. Uh, oh, Indeed. We are really privileged to bring you an interview this evening with Andrea Chalupa about the situation for women in Ukraine. Andrea is a filmmaker and a podcast host along with Sarah Kenzior. She co-hosts the podcast Gaslit Nation. Uh, they've been an invaluable source for information and analysis throughout the Trump era. And now as we get into the war in Ukraine, Andrea herself is um, first-generation Ukrainian-American and has been following the situation since way before anybody was was paying close attention. So they, uh, they've they been doing great work on Gaslit Nation. We got to speak with Andrea about the situation for women in Ukraine during Putin's ongoing assault on the country we're going to hear that interview now. Uh, this is Andrea Chalupa on Ukraine I want to uh, talk with you about in particular women in in the war right now mm-hmm. I mean but also it sounds like uh, in Ukraine women play leadership roles in uh, lots of different venues. So um, from from listening to you over the years, it sounds like women have been leaders in the resistance and in journalism, and in all other parts of life in Ukraine. So um could we start with a, a little bit of background on you and your work and your interest or or um expertise in in the situation in Ukraine?
2: Sure. So I'm a a ukraine i'm ukrainian american i was born and raised in northern california in davis and growing up my grandfather who is from donbass a the far eastern edge of ukraine that's been under russian invasion since 2014 uh, donbass is significant for ukraine for a number of reasons uh, it, before stalin Eastern Ukraine was a hotbed of Ukrainian national identity. Leading thinkers came from this region. There are major universities that played a a big part in the country's development. Um, My grandfather, born and raised there, uh, grew up speaking Ukrainian, writing in Ukrainian, thinking in Ukrainian. And then along came Stalin, who committed a uh, several genocides and and arguably his worst genocides. Arguably his worst genocide was against the Ukrainian people. He, in 1932, 1933, he sealed the borders of Ukraine and systematically took out uh, the grain, sold it abroad to rapidly modernize his empire. And in doing so, he starved to death something like 5 million people, the vast majority, like 4 million inside Ukraine. And in in addition to the starvation, because there weren't nuclear weapons back then, so how do you kill as many people as possible? You starve them to death. Um, In addition to the famine engineered by Stalin, he also declared all out war on Ukrainian national identity. Leading thinkers were arrested, executed, forced to commit suicide. Uh, major organizations ukrainian cultural organizations were shut down uh, and the language was replaced with russian and and over time uh, the area became repopulated with russians and so that's why you have now today ukraine effectively partitioned where the east is largely russian Russian russian-speaking um, and the West, which was not under the Soviet Union at that time, is, is Ukraine. It's what Ukraine looked like before Stalin. And Putin has been playing on on this, on this genocide, and he's, he's building off of it today with what we're seeing with his genocidal all-out war in Ukraine. Putin for years, along with his propaganda machine, his state TV, has been um, saying that Ukraine is not a country, Ukraine doesn't have a right to exist, Ukrainians are subhuman, and a lot of the atrocities that were that are now being revealed in, in Bukha outside Kiev, the witnesses have said that the soldiers, the Russian soldiers that were fire, firing on civilians, carrying out mass rape, killing children, were, we're repeating these talking points of Ukrainians uh, being subhuman, being Nazis and so forth, all of this genocidal language that Putin has been fanning on Russian state propaganda for many years now. And and under Putin, of course, Stalin, the cult of Stalin has come back where Stalin is seen as this great hero, this great leader and so forth. And so ha- having been very close to my grandfather growing up in Northern California, I knew what he had survived, uh, you know, literally suffering through Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine, uh, he was a young father who was arrested and tortured during Stalin's purges, the Great Terror. And so I wanted to pay tribute to all that he had suffered and, and of course, pay tribute to the countless millions of victims of Soviet atrocities. And and, it, and my way of doing that, all a project that's been very near and dear to my heart, this crazy idea I had when I was a history student at UC Davis was to research, write, and ultimately produce a screenplay about Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. And I tell that story through a real-life hero, a young Welsh independent journalist, young ambitious idealistic guy by the name of Gareth Jones, who risked his life and career to go inside Ukraine at the height of the famine and dare to report on it. And he was tenacious in his reporting. He took on the media establishment of the day. Uh, That was namely the Pulitzer Prize winning Moscow Bureau Chief of the New York Times, Walter Durante, otherwise known as our man in Moscow. He was this public intellectual of his day this celebrity he would go to the Al- Algonquin round table in New York City and and regale all the all the celebrities there with all these exotic stories of living in Moscow he would go to these hedonistic uh parties with with avant-garde characters and all sorts of colorful stuff he um, was a longtime lover with the, with the notorious Satanist Aleister Crowley. They shared a lover. They would engage in these black magic sex orgies. So Walter Durante was this hedonistic, larger than life character who was very much in the pocket of Stalin during his day and won his Pulitzer Prize for publishing essentially Soviet press releases, all while so- Stalin was laying the groundwork for his genocide of Ukrainians. And so I, I just was outraged by that. I, I understood that history very well as, as a Ukrainian-American growing up. Um, I was also outraged by the fact that growing up in America, when I would tell people I was from, my family's from Ukraine, they would switch it in their heads saying, oh, you're from Russia. And of course, the further, ga- the additional gaslighting to that that I experienced was most people had never heard of Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine because the Soviets were so good at covering it up. And their useful idiots around the world were very good at helping them from journalists to business leaders and academics and so forth. And it wasn't until really the fall of, of the Soviet Union where the, 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 all the captive nations that had been stuck under Moscow stuck under Russian colonial rule. It wasn't until those nations gained their freedom, like Ukraine and Poland and the Baltic states, where the archives were suddenly available to the world. And you can go in and see in big, bold numbers what what the atrocities were like. And thanks to that, you've had this new scholarship come in uh, of, of finally telling Ukraine's history, not through a Moscow lens, not through a gas lighting propaganda, a weapon, but through the this horrific stories of survivors, and 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 that gave back agency to Ukrainians, where they could finally get their history out, and um and I was very very grateful that um through some of those key historians like like Timothy Snyder who wrote Bloodlands Europe Between Hitler and Stalin. I was able to finally get my film, Mr. Jones, produced and directed by the great Agnieszka Holland, three-time Academy Award nominee. Agnieszka directed Europa, Europa, the story of a Jewish boy that hides in Hitler's youth to survive. She directed the original film version of The Secret Garden and lots of television like The Wire, House of Cards, The Affair. And Agnieszka was jumped on doing my screenplay right away, because this story was also personal for her. Her uh, Spigneshka grew up in Russian-occupied Poland, in Soviet-occupied Poland, and both her mother and father were journalists, and her father's official cause of death was suicide while under police interrogation. So she, like me, had a lot to say with our film, Mr. Jones, and it's it's an angry film. It's, it's a film that grabs the reader by the collar and just sort of says... You have to pay attention to what's happening in the world. You have to pay attention to Kremlin aggression, why it matters, how it flourishes thanks to corruption in the West, including in media, including in big corporations and how that pattern is repeating today and emboldening the Kremlin today. And that's how we got to this. That's why Putin felt like he could go back into Ukraine to do an all out genocide because of the corruption, because of all the people he bought off throughout the world. And, um, so if people want to see the historical context of where we are right now with the Ukraine and Russia go see Mr. Jones. Um, the film is it's not a documentary for some reason people <laughs> think, I don't know maybe it's cuz I'm a woman they and a little old me went out and made a big dramatic heavy muscular film and and people have a hard time understanding that. <laughs> and because I get people just automatically think I I made a documentary. There's right. nothing wrong with making a documentary. It's a big juicy sprawling historical film with actors the great James Norton who played um, the priest on Grandchester and was in Little Women and a lot of other gorgeous films and he
1: is wonderful in it too He's he's just so uh he just grabs your heart and the way that you go through the discovery of the what is the name that Ukrainians have for for that genocide
2: thank you for asking it's Holodomor Holodomor which um essentially means uh, death by hunger
1: hello de more mm-hmm. and as i'm hearing the news about the the war going on now and the the invasion and the it looks like genocide repeating itself uh, from from Russia as we speak. I think about the, the Ukrainians' awareness of their own history that most of the world is ignorant of because of what you just said, the gaslighting by the Soviet Union and the denial of the truth of it, um, but also what happened uh, more recently in the Maidan. And so there's all of this incredible history of resistance that's led us up to this moment that I don't know if people really have in mind the way that people of Ukrainian descent or Ukrainian people have in their bodies and in their in their cultural memories.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. So Ukraine has so if people are wondering where does all this resistance come from? Why are Ukrainians risking their lives? Why don't Ukrainians just lay down their arms, surrender, and cut a deal with Russia, then endure all this? The reason is because they've they know what Russian occupation feels like and it's genocide. It's mass murder. So if if somebody obviously th- there's that right. It's just they're they're in an existential battle for survival against Moscow's nationalistic imperialist ambitions. And in addition to that, Ukraine is a. This is how the way Ukraine sees itself is that it's a much older culture than Russia. Centuries before Moscow even existed, there was a big medieval empire based in Kiev that would marry off members of the royal family all across Europe, including to the Franks. And and you know, the, the Queen of France was Ukrainian. And there's a statue, her name's Anna of Kiev, and there's a statue of her in Luxembourg Gardens in Paris. So Ukrainians have um, statues throughout Kiev to the men and women, the royalty of this proud medieval kingdom that had relatively good rights for women back then, that had relatively high literacy rates that, again, intermarried across Europe. And so Ukrainians really see themselves as this ancient proud culture and they're 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 resource rich. They're right on the Black Sea. They're they're a breadbasket of, of of black earth where anything can grow, and so they've always been sort of they've always been caught between all these empires trying to absorb them. There's this saying in foreign policy that Russia with Ukraine is the United States. Russia without Ukraine is Canada. So Ukraine has always been this jewel. And, um, and it, and all it wants is just to be left alone and be Ukrainian and speak Ukrainian. And it's been, de- and since the fall of the Soviet Union, Ukraine has been on this democratic trajectory. Um, they've had two, they've had, um, twice already in 2004 with the Orange Revolution, and then 10 years later in 2014 with Euromaidan, twice Putin's puppet. The Donald Trump of Ukraine, this this gold loving guy named Viktor Yanukovych, who um, and who, you know, he tried to steal the election in 2004. Ukrainians camped out in the street demanding a new election and they got one because they, 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 the first one was corrupt and they got an open one and a, a free one um, one with all these international election observers. And with this guaranteed free and fair election they elected a candidate for president who was not Yanukovych Putin's puppet but a western leaning president and then what happened was typical of any society that takes for granted the the rights and freedoms it has they fell into infighting division that's a warning for us here in the U.S. if if you're a democrat (laughs) and um, what happened was that Yanukovych came back he he cleaned himself up he hired uh, Paul Manafort who ran? We all know Paul Manafort from running Donald Trump's campaign. Paul Manafort was his Republican operative who uh, told Yanukovych what to say, how to dress, how to shape himself as a candidate, and that. And he was able to become president through the through the dark arts, the help of Paul Manafort. And when he became president, he just turned into Donald Trump, full blown, enriching himself and his family. Uh, ex- building this lavish Versaimic mansion, paid for with Ukrainian taxpayers' stolen wealth, stolen dollars. And when Ukrainians had enough of his corruption, they, they again took to the streets. But this time Yanukovych fired on them, he sent in the snipers. Um, and so Ukrainians went to battle with him in the streets. European officials came in to try to broker a peace deal. And Ukrainians said, "No, we're not going to stand down until Yanukovych is no longer president. There's no way he gets to stay in power." And so scared <laughs> of, of the Ukrainian people that he fled to Russia, where he's been ever since. And there's an extraordinary documentary that everyone should watch that tells this story. And it's called "Winter on Fire." And um, so, you know, Ukrainians since then, you know, since 2014. They've expanded their democracy in the sense of expanding greater rights and greater anti-corruption production. They've expanded their, the LGBTQ community, Kiev Pride, Kharkiv Pride, all, all, the, all these cities coming together, having um, you know, more inclusive communities for, for LGBTQ Ukrainians who are now openly serving in Ukraine's military. They've expanded their uh, footprint on the world stage of being one of the leaders in IT and tech talent. There's several cities across Ukraine that were competing to be the Silicon Valley of Ukraine, and they've become more and more European. And, um, and, you know, Ukraine is a country where people have been giving their lives to join Europe, to be a member of the European Union. And they they even elected, you know, a Jewish president. They had a prime minister together at the same time, and nobody cared Nobody cared, <laughs> you know, so it's it's this multicultural inc- and really warm and open society the, the, the entire time I lived in Kiev in, in 2005, I would walk around Kiev and I'd, I'd ask someone for directions and they would just walk me there. And they're all so warm and open. And I always felt as an outsider, just... I, taken care of no matter where i went with this famous ukrainian hospitality i did not feel that way in 2005 when i when i went to russia and i couldn't wait to get the hell out of russia russia has gone the opposite direction all these years than ukraine they've been moving in, in polar opposite directions and that is a big reason for putin's war because if ukraine becomes this super successful democracy with this strong economy then Russians who are watching this are are going to want the same inside Russia. And the number one thing Putin fears is not Ukrainians, but the Russian people rising up against him. And Ukraine has been for years now, a hotbed for resistance of all kinds. So you've had Russian organizers, Russian journalists, fleeing Russia and, 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 and living and continuing their work inside Ukraine. Same with activists, um, organizers, politicians from Belarus. So Ukraine has been a refuge in that part of the world, for people who dare take on um, autocracy and risk their lives for it. Ukraine protects those people and and gives them the resources they need with this really strong, vibrant civil society that uses technology in interesting ways, uses culture and music in interesting ways to expand and build democracy. So it's really a jewel of that region on the democratic front and, and in the multicultural inclusivity front in so many ways. And that's why what's going on right now is such a tragedy, because it was it was it was it was helping not just Ukraine, but the region, the region grow closer towards democracy, keeping the flame warm for democracy in Belarus and Russia. Putin knows all that, which is why he's stomping it out. And Putin blames America for all that. That's right. Putin, Putin thinks it's it's America that's pushing this big gay agenda. Right. Like if you In Florida with his don't say gay laws and all the anti gay laws, the Republicans are pushing across the country. Putin started all that in 2013 to consolidate power and stay in power in his road to really coming out as a as a dictator where before he was being more subtle, but then the tide really turned. And, and part of that turn was his open war on the Western big gay agenda. And that's how he's been selling it to the Russian nationalists across the country that keep him in power is, you know, I'm the one that's going to give you traditional family values. I'm going to protect you from the West where genders, where you can marry dogs and cats and animals and, and it's the heathen West and, and, and that's how, and they're all Nazis and, and that sounds outlandish i mean it's that's what it is that's what's been fueling this for years now and so yeah
1: You're listening to Wild Women on KZYX. This is an interview with Andrea Chalupa, a filmmaker and co-host along with Sarah Kenzior of the Gaslit Nation podcast. I'm Alicia Bales, co-host of Wild Women. I'm Lux Karpov. And we'll get back to that interview. Do you think there's anything to the metaphor of... um, Uh, an abusive or domestic violence relationship where when the woman finally leaves the relationship or or escapes it, that's when it's most dangerous that, that the abuser will most often use lethal force. I mean, I've been looking at this and just thinking about the gender dynamics, and I know women are at the forefront of a lot of the resistance, but even the country itself, it just seems like Putin as an abuser and a murderer um, is, you know, when when the woman tries to leave is when she's most at risk.
2: I think without question, but it, people have to remember that Russian atrocities against Ukrainians have been going on for centuries. And Russia has been targeting a lot of uh, Ukrainian cultural icons, artists leading thinkers for centuries for centuries so so what's going what is happening in ukraine is just another dark chapter of a series of dark chapters but there is something incredibly um but that metaphor you just described is used by ukrainians themselves they they create memes and, and illustrations conveying exactly that idea because putin is always blaming them for what he has to do to ukraine so for instance um In the lead up to this latest invasion, Putin was giving some speech where he made a rape joke. He made a rape joke, basically saying to Ukraine, like, sit back and take it, my beauty. And so you have this mass murdering terrorist dictator making a rape joke. And now his soldiers, as soon as they go into Ukraine, we're getting all these reports of mass rape, mass rape, including the rape. Of children, several children, young, including young children, and you've had women who've had their husbands killed and they've been raped in front of their children. So with all this mass rape that's been carrying being carried out across Ukraine, where Russia has occupied villages and cities, where are they getting this from? It's a culture set at the very top. And I understand that people want to be sympathetic to a lot of the Russians who are forced to flee the country, who are forced to live under a totalitarian regime. But the reality is that there's a deep-seated corrupt criminal culture that has been proudly built starting from the very top. The Soviet Union was established a century ago, and ever since then, there's been this terrorist regime running things in moscow a kgb dictatorship yes the kgb has changed its name over the years from the ogpu to the nkbd to the kgb to the fsb i understand but for the sake of simplicity it's the same terror squad the same sadists that have been running things in moscow and they're criminally minded they're sadistic they rely on terror They rely on demoralizing the enemy totally. Um, They rely on all of these um, horrific tactics to infiltrate societies and kill off, neutralize the threats. And there's just so many examples of this across that entire region of, of countries that used to be stuck under Moscow rule. And that first and foremost, Russian genocidal colonialism under Moscow That first and foremost is what expanded NATO. If any well meaning person, especially on the left, reads John Mearsheimer and for the the scholar at the University of Chicago and gets seduced by that nonsense that Putin is justified by carrying out these atrocities because NATO expanded, NATO expanded because all these countries were banging down its doors saying, let us in. And look how good those countries are doing now. The ones that suffered under Moscow's rule that got into NATO are safe. They're safe. They're not experiencing mass rape right now. They're not having their cities destroyed. They're not having hunger being used as a weapon where people being starved to death deliberately like they are right now in Mari- Mariupol, right? And so in Mariupol Ukraine, Ukraine was not lucky enough to get into NATO. France and Germany blocked it, right? Years ago. Ukraine was not lucky enough to get into NATO and now look where Ukraine is now. Putin is not going to go to war with NATO because Putin is scared of NATO. Putin knows, you know, it, he's, he's not this mad dictator. He's not insane. People have to understand that. Putin is representative of a larger rot that has taken over Russia and has been in place this strongly at least for at least a century and it was it was always an empire right it's been an empire for some time now but the extreme that it's reached in terms of this criminal mindset of a of a sadistic mindset of a genocidal mindset has really reached a fever pitch during the soviet period for the last 100 years and it's never gone away because russia has never ever been forced to atone for its history like germany was forced to with the nuremberg trials and, and, and you know the, the big defeat of World War Two. Russia it never t- went through that process.
3: It sounds like both countries, the way you're describing it, have um like crystallized and enhanced like where they started as like their moral compass. You talked about how Ukraine uh, in its medieval good with women's rights, and it sounds like they've just broadened that. They've expanded as as developed um, their, their women's rights, LGBTQ rights, as you were saying, and their democracy and their fight for uh, humanitarian rights, whereas Russia, in all its iterations of it, has gone more extreme in the other direction. And I, I'd like to hear more about your thoughts about, like, historically, you say that Ukraine has had really good women's rights and has had expanded that. How did, what was it like back then? And how how are we seeing that now? Like, what role um, are, are women playing in the war efforts? What role are women, have women played historically in getting Ukraine to the point where they are this beacon for democracy and for uh, human rights? And, and, what's ha- and, and, and how is the, the, the violence and atrocities being committed against, especially the women and children and female children? How do you think that's going to impact that journey and that, that path?
2: Right. Well, so, you know, Ukraine is like any modern society. I, I just to illustrate that, like if you go there, um, you'll see lots of bars and restaurants that seem straight, straight out, out of Brooklyn, LA, or, or any place It just feels very modern. You know, you'll see a, a group of people doing yoga in the park. You'll see a bunch of people all decked out. Um, it, um, like, like it's it's the Tour de France. Biking is really a big thing in Kiev, for instance. Like, you see these health nut cultures. You see restaurants from all over the world. You know, it's, it feels like international, progressive, in the cities, certainly. And and there's major, uh, dip, there's major cities across the country that feel that way. And with that, you have women. You know, they they go to they walk to work wearing flats. They put on whatever the shoes they feel like wearing at work, or they keep their flats on. They they take their dog to work it just feels like the women you know at work you know it's just it's just that kind of society and and um and you have women that were very early building barricades during ukraine's revolution in 2014 you had a woman journalist who was the first to risk her life to um jump over the fence and take photos of a uh, Yanukovych, Putin's Trumpian Ukrainian puppet, take photos of his lavish Versailles McMansion and what did they do to her? They ran her off the road, pulled her out of her car and beat her so severely that her entire face swelled up and you couldn't even recognize her. Um, and that was a woman, an investigative journalist that did that and she would go on later to fight with the revolution and run for office and become a member of parliament and you had a lot of women that were running for parliament and um, work, you know working for Um, various anti-corruption groups and tracking down all the stolen wealth that was being uh, laundered not just from their country but Russia to capitals across Europe including London and that and these were women that were on the are the forefront and helping newsrooms around the world piece together the big web of global corruption Um, and so it's really important to understand oh and then you have feminine the, the famous topless Ukrainian protesters who predated Ukraine's most recent revolution, they were there protesting conservative values in Ukraine, like hardcore religious values that are sort of strangling the country with this old, old world mindset. They, and they took off their shirts to do it and then they would expand their activism to confront corruption and authoritarianism and any oppression of women generally and they, they set up shop in Paris where they have a headquarters and they became so popular in Paris that um, a national stamp in France was made to look like one of the founders of Feminine. So this whole tradition of women being strong and fearless I think it I think it comes from the fact that Ukraine doesn't just have founding fathers, they have founding mothers. So they, 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 they have statues to St. Olga, for instance, in the heart of Kiev, who was one of the leaders of that medieval kingdom. And so a big towering statue of a woman in the heart of the city and, and, and other statues like that um, throughout the city. So there's this feeling of uh, we're a strong, proud nation. Our women are strong. And that's an important part of the culture. Um, It doesn't mean that it it doesn't fall into the typical traps of of, you know, (laughs) of, of tradition that tends to be pretty prevalent in that part of the world. But Ukraine has been evolving rapidly for that part of the world, and it shows you have a first lady um, Zelensky's wife, I believe her name is Elena um, Zelenska. Um, she wears sneakers, you know, cute, you know, sneakers with dresses and, and it's just that this, she, she worked for a time with her husband on developing their TV show. Um, and so she made a career for her, herself outside of her marriage. It's obviously very common there. Um, so there's a lot of pride in that. And I think with this war effort, you have also a massive number of women who are mobilized from snipers to pi- to pilots and all over the front lines that are that are soldiers real soldiers and um and you and they're serving in the war effort obviously in leadership positions in zelensky's cabinet and they're documenting war crimes there i know a lot of ukrainian women who are forced to stare at this evil in the face and document the mass rape and document the uh the children that are being deliberately murdered and and deliberately hunted too there are reports of that now that kids are being, like, being hunted for fun by Russian soldiers that are occupying some of these cities and so a lot of the people on the front of staring that evil in the face making sure it gets to the right powers that be that can that, uh, build case war crimes there it's women it's women who are doing that right now and and it's I can't like you and the three of us have the luxury, right. To look away. We can take a break from this. They can't, there's, this is what they're doing now day in and day out. And they're also raising families on top of this. I have, I have several friends who are women journalists in Ukraine and I, I, and and I keep in touch with them and it's, that's, it blows my mind. It blows my mind what they're doing. You know, it's, it's, they're there's living this story day in and day out and also reporting on it and, and, and getting the truth out and back checking all this in real time. They do not have the luxury to look away. And on top of that, they're raising their families while their husbands are off fighting the war. I have a friend whose husband is a linguist. He's a linguist. He speaks like seven different languages fluently, including Latin. He's a linguist. And now he's in the army defending his country. And he's away from his wife and his two kids. And his wife was telling me, she's a journalist for a major, for a major media outlet. And she was telling me that at night when the sirens go off, because the sirens are always going off and they have to get into the bomb shelter, she takes her two kids down there and it's crammed full of people and they're sick. Everyone's sick. It's a time of COVID, right? Like her kids have bronchitis and pneumonia all the time because they're constantly racing down to the bomb shelter. Imagine trying to do your job as a journalist where you're on the front lines of of this horrific war and you can't look away. At the same time, you're a mom raising two kids alone because your husband's out in the war. It's like it's just it's just devast it's just it's just realities that we have not faced here in the U S it's
1: unthinkable almost. It's a privilege. It's
2: like, we're so blinded by our own privilege that people just like us have had their lives completely upended and destroyed and are forced to continue functioning as parents. They're forced to continue to function as professionals so they can bring money in and do their jobs, right. To keep the country running, to keep the information flowing. And on top of that, they're being bombarded by these horrific reports or experiencing these horrific war crimes directly that are destroying their family well and i can't help mass but rape.
1: and i can't help but think about um the effect on the future on their lives in the future as they you know they've they've been um against their will turned into a, a military you know defense culture they've had to be turned into warriors and fighters um and the level of violence that they have to employ in order to defend themselves their families and their nation um you know no one would wish it on anyone and i just wonder about the children about the moms about the 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 the, the fathers who and the refugees of course too but just the upending of this entire civilization um and what that's going to mean for them in the future and andrea um we're running short on time so i wonder if you can talk about um, what comes next and what, what we can do, you know, knowing that we sit here just, um, drowning in, in this peace and privilege that we have in our everyday lives. How can we force ourselves to look and what actions should we be taking?
2: Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn away. I mean, on, on, um, you can follow a really great organization called RASM, Razom, R A Z O M, Razom, and they're what, web- They're on Twitter, and their website is rosim4ukraine.org. They have a wonderful, trusted international network of getting relief to refugees and also getting medical supplies into Ukraine. And they're just a wonderful, nimble group that's been around since the revolution of 2014. I know these guys personally. Stephen Colbert recently promoted them on their Twitter, so everyone should check out Razum. Follow them on Twitter. Donate what you can to Rosam. I would also encourage people to follow the Kiev Independent on Twitter because they're always sharing all these great updates. And their journalists are these young reformers, men and women who are the new face of Ukraine, the future of Ukraine. So, you know, I think I, the tragedy, the genocide that Putin is is carrying out now it's is going to leave trauma. It's going to leave destruction that we're going to live with as a, as a global community, for the rest of our lives, These, this country will need our support and our attention for the rest of our lives because you don't get over anything like this. The trauma of Stalin's genocide famine still hangs over Ukraine. I People would come to me crying after seeing my film. There is... Famine survivors from the Stalin period that were too afraid to talk because they internalized the terror, even though it had happened generations ago. So imagine what Putin's war is doing to these people. It's the same sort of enduring trauma. And so they're going to need all of our support and love and attention to rebuild themselves as people after what they've been through and also the country. And they're resilient. They have a a lot of cultural um, community and, and, and they're, they're strong. They have a social fabric that unfortunately Russians don't have. And I know that from working with the Russian resistance, working with Russians who have come over and needed asylum help. It's a much more fractured culture because of what Putin's nationalism has done. Ukrainians at least have the benefit of having a stronger, more cohesive, more united national family because they're all in this together and that is a benefit for that for them and and how they can rebuild from this um and and so we just have to be with them on this journey because by doing so if we get ukraine back on track to be a strong independent democracy it's going to shine a, a very important impactful light for that part of the world Russians and Ukrainians have always said that Kiev, Ukraine, is keeping the flame of democracy warm for Russia when it's ready. So by protecting Ukraine, by preserving Ukraine, ultimately what you're going to do is protect and preserve democracy for Russia.
1: All right, Lux, do you have any other questions for Andrea?
3: Um, no, I mean, I think that was really beautifully articulated and my heart breaks for what's happening there. My husband was born in Yushna, uh, to a Russian father and an Ukrainian mother, and we still have family there. And what's happening there is just heartbreaking. So thank you for sharing your thoughts about where all this is coming from and where it's going and how we can support the
1: people there.
2: Oh my gosh my pleasure well thank you so much for having me on this is this is an honor to chat with you today and get this information out there.
1: Thank you so much and Andrea, can you tell people about uh, how to find your podcast?
2: Yes, so Gaslit nation is everywhere wow. and <laughs> so um You can find it on on iTunes and all the usual places. I, I, sorry, is that right? iTunes? (laughs) That's where I
1: find it. (laughs) Yes.
2: Yes. And, um, so Gaslit Nation at Gaslit Nation on Twitter, and you can watch my film, Mr. Jones on Amazon, Hulu, iTunes, cable on demand. It's pretty much everywhere. And, um, thank you everyone so much for taking the time for this conversation. Thank
1: you. Thank you for being a voice of, uh, Unflinching moral clarity and helping us understand the past and the present of Ukraine. Andrea Chalupa. Thank yes,
2: you, thank so, you much. so much. Bye bye. Appreciate it.
1: This is Alicia Bales, co host of Wild Women. And this is Lux Karpov. You just listened to an interview with Andrea Chalupa, who's a filmmaker and podcast host, co host, along with Sarah Kenzior, of the Gaslit Nation podcast.
0: I'm Lux Karpov-Kinraid, USA Today bestselling author of over 50 books and one half of the pen name Karpov-Kinraid, along with my husband and writing partner, Dmitri. Together, we write a variety of genres, including fantasy romance, science fiction, and romantic suspense. As I mentioned earlier in the show, Dmitri was born in the city of Kleins, Ukraine, and still has family there, so what's happening to the people of Ukraine is especially close to our hearts which is why we were excited to say yes when invited to participate in a charity anthology to support Ukraine. We contributed a story called Forever Bound, a fantasy romance set in Ukrainian village stuck in time, using Ukrainian folklore as the foundation of the story. You can find this novella in the anthology Fierce Hearts, along with over 1,000 pages of fantasy romance and romantic fantasy. You can also enjoy a large collection of sci-fi, paranormal romance, and urban fantasy In Adamant Spirits, another anthology full of amazing authors supporting Ukraine. 100% of proceeds go to Ukrainian support. To learn more about these anthologies, you can find them on any major ebook retailer or visit my website for links at readkk.com. And now for a short excerpt from Forever Bound by Karpov Kinraid and available in Fierce Hearts, a charity anthology for Ukraine. For the first time in my life, I'm lost. Truly and legitimately lost. I don't know what to do about it. I've been wandering the forest for hours, and as the sun sets, the chill in the air grows, mirroring the bone-deep frost forming in my bones. How many times can I flirt with death before he comes to claim me for good? Everywhere I turn, everything looks the same. The same trees, the same rocks, the same bushes, the same snow. I don't know if it's the curse trapping me in this spot or if I've lost my wits, but I can't find the village or the cave or anything else for that matter. The fear doesn't truly steal my resolve until the night descends, covering the world in darkness. Even the moon, still looking full in the sky, seems to have had a hard time penetrating the deep purple shadows settling around me. And then the storm comes. Rain and sleep pour from the sky like bullets meant to kill or maim their target. This isn't a docile Christmas scene one might envision Santa Claus in. This is more like what Santa's evil twin would travel in. Winter has come indeed. I chuckle at the reference despite myself. Let's just hope George R. R. Martin isn't writing my story or I'm unlikely to live through it. Huddling under the largest tree I can find, pulling the cloak Vera gave me tightly around my shoulders, I close my eyes and pray to gods I don't believe in that I'll make it through the night. When I hear the inhumane sound of a fierce beast, I know my prayers have not been answered. I don't see the creature, but I hear him, lurking, hunting, stalking. I try to stay still, to calm my breathing, to hold my fear deep within, lest it betray me. Why would the man who saved me the night before want to kill me tonight? Because I escaped? Because I disobeyed his orders to stay inside? He warned me, and I didn't listen. (laughs) Story of my life. I never see him. He is only ever the air around me, wishing past, the breath on my neck, the nightmare of my dreams except nothing he can do can compete with my actual nightmares. That's the part he doesn't understand. How can I fear the monster he is when I already live with a much worse monster every day of my life? So I stand and I cry out into the night. I scream and I cry and I challenge the beast to come and get me. You want to kill me? I scream. Then do it. Do it. I'm ready. I've been ready for six long years. End my life right now, you piece of garbage. You'd be doing me a favor. The wind steals my voice and carries it far and wide and i feel a lightning of my soul at finally saying what i've been too afraid to acknowledge before it should have been me who died and now it will be i'm already resigned to my death when i feel him close by his presence no longer the weirdly familiar feeling i had in the cave now he feels all monster and i'm ready for him he comes from behind and i don't turn around Something sharp slashes across my back. I fall to the ground already close to unconsciousness when he pulls me to my feet and digs his fangs into the flesh of my neck. Searing pain floods me. I strain to see his face, to look into his eyes and force him to watch me die, but the moment never comes. Instead, I see only darkness. That's an excerpt from Forever Bound by Karpov Kinraid, which you can find in the charity anthology Fierce Hearts. Thanks, Lux. That's super exciting. Thank you. Yeah, we were very excited to be a part of this and just all the other authors. New New York Times and USA Today bestselling authors from all over the world have contributed to this. And it's been quite an opportunity to support Ukraine.
1: We'll end now with a hopeful story from Ukiah about a local group of young women who are organizing for women's empowerment at Ukiah High. And this story is produced for us by Stacey Sheldon.
0: I love this group so much. It's so inspiring. (music)
4: Ukiah High School has a new club on campus, the Women's Empowerment Club. Over 30 high school feminists founded this club at the start of the school year. They meet weekly during lunch to address what they believe to be systems of oppression that prevent feminists, women's rights, and gender justice to thrive as realities on their campus and the world at large. Two members of the Women's Empowerment Club share details about the group with wild women.
5: I am Tessa Turnwall, and I am the president and founder of Women's Empowerment Club. My friend had started a club like this at her school, and I told my friends about it. And I remember after telling everyone about it, a lot of people came up to me and asked me, is this actually going to happen? And that really made me happy that this was an idea that was a welcome by so many people, and it seemed needed at the school. There are a lot of inequalities happening at the high school and a lot of I think anger and frustration behind them and as much as I want to like change these things I also just want a place where people can come and talk and vent about all the issues that they see on campus and off campus definitely and I want it to just be an open like safe place for people to come and share. There is a large issue of people who have been harassed or assaulted by other classmates And the administration doesn't do a lot to protect them, and they still have to face this person at school and even in their classes. And there's also a large issue with dress codes of people policing people's bodies and dress coding people's bodies over the actual clothes that they're wearing. And these are just like a few issues that we face on campus, as well as just like comments and attitudes that all women face everywhere from men and other women
6: sometimes. I am Lucille Shackman. I am one of the vice presidents of Women's Empowerment Club, and I have been really interested in women's issues for a while now, and since it affects me and so many people I know, I thought it would be amazing to join, and it was a good cause, so that got me really interested in it.
4: Members of the Women's Empowerment Club research feminist topics to create informative presentations, which are then shared at the weekly meetings. Club members use data, reports, articles, and visuals to create PowerPoint presentations that serve to educate club members and spark discussions. Lucy speaks about the presentation she created.
6: In my presentation that I gave in one of the meetings, it was about internalized misogyny and misogyny in media and how it perpetuates itself for young girls to even do it or spread it to the people around them. There's a lot of tropes in movies and television of, you know, the femme fatale or whether it be uh, this um, almost toxic femininity of where, you know, they equate evilness or these really dislikable qualities to feminine nature. And that is very, very common in media.
4: The pink tax informed Tessa's presentation.
5: The pink tax is when products are made specifically for women and then advertised and directed toward women and the prices are much higher than their counterparts that are made for men when these are really just products that are similar so like a example is men and women's shampoo have vastly different prices where the only real thing that makes them different is maybe like a scent or the way that it's packaged so all these things that women are being charged so much more for and this is seen in the beauty industry but it's also seen even young children's toys like a pink bike helmet compared to a blue bike helmet have vastly different prices when they're both just helmets and I also did a little bit about how to kind of protect yourself from that which is maybe buying gender-neutral products like shaving cream or razors to try to budget yourself and then also other people that you can contact within our government and stuff like that to try to change this policy We've had some other presentations about women in the workplace, which was talking about women's confidence and imposter syndrome and reasons why maybe women have less confidence because of the way that our systems have been set up for women. And we've had another presentation about dress codes and how women get dress coded a lot more, especially women of color, and how that can affect women's body image and their feelings about themselves.
4: Lucy comments on the club's upcoming events.
6: So right now we're working towards bringing the club into middle schools and elementary, late elementary um, after school programs to not only share presentations like this, but do craft time and hang out with them and just have a nice environment surrounding them. And we are also planning on right now doing a art competition and poem competition for Sexual Assault Awareness Month later this month and in May.
4: Any and all Ukiah High School students who are interested in learning more about the Women's Empowerment Club are invited to attend their weekly
6: meeting.
5: We meet at Mondays at lunch in R2.
6: We are welcoming of anybody who wants to stop by, whether it's just a really short, sure, seeing what the club's about or they plan on staying there for a much longer time. We have maybe
5: 20 to 30 people in our Google Classroom, and those are usually people that consistently come, and it's also not just women. We have, like, a lot of men who regularly come and a lot of people who identify in all ways, because this club, it's about empowering women, but it's also just about empowerment. Like, we want everyone to feel good.
0: This is Lux Karpov. I'm Alicia Bales. And you're listening to Wild Women, an intersectional feminist radio show where we talk about women's issues. Our next show will be July 29th, where you'll get to hear about feminist TikTok, what BookTok is doing, and what the romance world of authors can tell you about women and feminism. Today, you've also heard about the impact of the Ukrainian war, the anthology charity support that we're doing for Ukraine, and a short report from the Women's Empowerment Club. Thank you so much for listening. Wild Women comes to you the fifth Fridays of the month, alternating with
1: Pride Radio Mendocino, Pride Nation 101, and the student-powered hour. You can hear our next show on July 29th at seven o'clock. Thanks, Lux. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time.